Lord God, we come before you today, and we are a people in great need of your grace. Lord God, it says in your word, you will not despise humble, broken, contrite heart. Lord, I pray that through the teaching of your word, the preaching of your word, your powerful word spoken to us, that you would break our hearts and reveal to us our need for you. Reveal to us the ways in which we have been far from you. Reveal to us the ways in which we have disobeyed you, Lord. I ask, God, that your spirit would be with us today and convict us of our sin. And, Lord, I thank you today for your word. I thank you for the power of your word to heal and to change, to transform our lives, to forgive us and to free us from the dominion and slavery of sin, and to open our eyes to the glory of the gospel and the glory of your word. I pray you be with Chuck today as he preaches this message. I ask, Lord, that we would hear you. I pray that you would break through barriers and obstacles and ultimately would leave us changed and transformed. And we are so thankful for you and thankful for what you have done. How can we say anything except thank you, Lord? We give all glory to you. May you be glorified through this day, through this message. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning, everyone. If you would, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 3. We're going to read what's a rather long section today, and then we'll try and reference many of those verses in our sermon. So I've asked Allison and Terry if they would come and help us read today. So we'll be in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the seat rack in front of you. Feel free to take that if you need a Bible. So Hebrews 3, 7. Would you read, Ellison? Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They will always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you in in, in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But extort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us, just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, 
and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterwards in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Thank you. Pretty clear, right? Actually, it's kind of a difficult, complicated passage. But there's some immense meaning, truth, and application for us here today. Are you one of those people, as you think about your life, that are constantly in a hurry? Some of, some of us in the room today are incessantly rushed. Our lives are swamped with obligations, projects, duties, people. We never can seem to get everything done that's on our lists. We chronically run from one thing to the next to the next, stumbling into bed way past the point of exhaustion, only to get up the next day and repeat it all over again. We pump ourselves full of caffeine and jolt and five-hour energy so we can stay awake. And this seems normal. We tend to view busyness as a badge of honor because the busier we are, the more important we feel. Why? What's behind this compulsion that some of us have to always do more? Well, on the surface, there's probably many reasons why we tend to live overrun lives. Demands at school and work seem to ever increase. The pressure to do more in a shorter amount of time for less pay has likely never been stronger. Snapchat, text messages, Skype, email, they're all available not just at the computer, but in a little device we carry in our pockets and purses. So we're never undetected from each other. Many companies in America have work cultures that demand overworking and reward not taking time off. I read a statistic this week that said 40% of us will not use the vacation time allotted to us this year. Many Americans, on top of all of these demands, have immense familial carnage. In other words, just getting through the relationships in our families seems to take more and more time because we're trying to juggle who's mad at who and help them not kill each other. It would seem that many of these reasons are the reasons why we struggle with chronic busyness. Perhaps you're in a particularly demanding season in life right now. 
And there is some truth to the fact that at different points in life, there are different demands placed upon our schedules. But at least for some of us, this passage would tell us that the reasons for our busyness go much deeper than the external demands. This passage would tell us that for some of us, there are deeper reasons that we're stressed, maxed out forever in a rush. Actually, it has nothing to do with our circumstances. It's not driven by bosses and teachers, schedules and appointments. There's something else going on. Friends, maybe if you're living every day in a hurry, it's because you're consumed with a fear, a fear of rejection. You fear that saying no might cost you someone's positive impression of you. So you toil to the point of exhaustion over and over and over again, forever looking over your shoulder for a smile or a compliment that will keep your next little idol satisfied. The fear of rejection causes people to blow up in anger. Have you done it this week? Did someone frustrate your need for their approval, therefore you threw a fit? That's what anger may reveal. This fear of rejection causes codependency. It makes us easy targets for manipulation. It is the very essence of peer pressure. It breeds resentment and hostility or resility. It makes us hypersensitive and easily offended. But perhaps most problematic, the fear of rejection lies at the very root of many of our lives where we live in overcommitment. So to start us off today, I just ask you, are you an approval addict? Do you live not for God, but for other people, for what they think and say and feel about you. The pull of people-pleasing drives us to the very edge. It motivates us to say yes to people and projects and class loads and work and relationships where our controlling desire isn't their good, but rather their worship of us. That's what living for the approval of people ultimately is. The good news is that Hebrews 3 and 4, in this long complex, confusing passage we've just read, lays before us the truth that we need to hear so that we could live free from the approval of people. The good news, as Hebrews 3 and 4 tells us, is there is rest for you. If you're chronically in need of the approval of people, you're not alone. And there's rest for you. If you deeply fear rejection, then you're somebody that's deeply in need of rest, right? And here I'm not talking about leisure or sleep, although a lack of either leisure or sleep might be an indicator that you don't have God's rest. That's not the rest this passage is talking about, though. It's talking about something much richer and much deeper. And we're going to need God to illuminate our hearts and minds if we're to see it. So let me pray again for us just for a moment. Father, we're people, some of us, who are chronically, constantly, internally in a sense of angst. Part of that is because we keep schedules that are simply insane. But deeper than that, there's a reason why some of us tend to keep schedules like that. It's not so much the external pressures put on us by others. It's 
the internal need to have people's approval, to have their glance and their smile and their approval and their compliments. And ultimately what lies underneath all of that is a sense that we cannot be comfortable in our own skin unless we have the approval of others. And God, that's a miserable way to live. There's a much better way to live. There's a much richer, joy-filled, peaceful way to live. It's a life of rest. We pray as we look at this passage today that so wonderfully lays out our own hearts and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Would you open our minds and hearts that we could understand? And I pray for those of us in the room who need this so much today, that whether we came here or not expecting to hear from you, that we would. That our hearts would be sensitive and open to what you would say to us. And that we would be willing to lay down our pride and say yes to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The rest in Hebrews 4 gets down to to this kind of level. It's exhausting to manage the approval and the opinions of others. In fact, it really can't be done. It's exhausting to attempt to win and maintain the favor of God. You can't do that either. It's exhausting to face the daily demands of life with self-dependency and self-confidence. It's exhausting to try and live a religious life. A life that says, if I just do this one more thing, then God will be happy with me. God will love me and accept me. Friends, there is a rest that can set you free from all of that exhaustion. Exhaustion can end and rest can reign. That's what Hebrews 3 and 4 is ultimately about. Now, as I've already said, this is a complicated passage. So hang with me a few minutes and we'll see if we can unpack its meaning. What actually is going on in Hebrews 3 and 4 is that this passage quotes from Psalm 95, which references an event in Exodus 17, which alludes to Genesis 1 and 2. Now, if you have no idea what I just said and that makes you feel stupid and like you don't fit in around here, then this message is for you. Not because you need some big history lesson, but because your instinct to feel that way may reveal that you're not resting in the rest provided by God. So Hebrews 3 and 4 uses the word rest in three different ways. And Instead of walking through this verse by verse, I'm going to try, just for time's sake, to pull those meanings together and just lay them out plainly for you. So the first rest that this passage talks about is what we might call a Sabbath rest. God is said to have rested from his creation. So in this rest, the author of Hebrews reaches all the way back to the very beginning. And he says that God created the world, and at the end of his creation, he did what? It says he rested. He took a Sabbath. Now, for those of us that are kind of questioning, skeptically-minded people, that raises all kinds of questions, doesn't it? I mean, does God get tired? Does God need a nap? 
Does God sleep on his back or his side? Does he prefer a pillow or no pillow? Does he use his arm or not his arm? What does he do as he rests? Now that, of course, isn't what the passage is ultimately getting at. If you read Genesis 1 and 2 closely, maybe you could do that later today with a friend or a family member, you'll find that God's rest was not so much a rest of exhaustion as it was a rest of satisfaction. See, God created everything that there is simply by speaking. And then he sat back and he looked at it and he said, wow, this is really good. This is amazing. This is wonderful. And so God sat down, if you will, on the inside and looked at what he'd made. And he said, this is remarkable and I will take delight in it. That's a different picture of rest. God put this rhythm of rest into the very fabric of creation itself. He told his people, work, rest, work, rest, work, rest. You see, to get something done and then to sit back with satisfaction is a good thing. It's a godly thing. Adam and Eve were able to enjoy that kind of rest. But then as the story goes on, we find in Genesis 3, not long into the story, that rest was lost because sin entered the world. Toil and hardship became normal. God, though, despite this presence of toil and hardship because of sin, promised that rest would return. In fact, he said he would raise up a people of rest. So last week, we talked about Moses. Moses, many years after Genesis 1 and 2, was led by God to take the Jews out of Egypt and into the land of Israel. He was to take the people and to lead them into the place of rest. And that brings up the second kind of rest talked about in Genesis 3, Hebrews 3 and 4. We might call it the land rest. This was the rest of being God's people in the land of Israel. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the story, that's completely okay. There's quite a few of us in the room who may be hearing this for the first time. But if you read in your Bible the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, so the second, third, fourth, and fifth books in your Bible, those describe this time period in which the Jews were not in Egypt any longer and not in the land of Israel, but were somewhere in between. They were in the Sinai Desert. This was the period of time that Hebrews 3 and 4 is talking about. This is the time where they were headed into the place of rest. This land was supposed to be a place where the Jews would have all their needs met. And we're given pictures of this, like relief from their enemies, the presence of plenty of food, God himself being with them. And that's what living in the land of Israel was all about. The problem was that along the way, as those books make really clear, some of those Jews grumbled and complained. They didn't trust in what God had provided for them. They, in fact, said they wanted to go back to Israel, back to Egypt, because the food was better there. Imagine being a slave who had all your physical needs met and now you're a people of God wandering around in the desert 
and you're eating bread and drinking water every day. So some of them didn't like that too much. They said, we want to go back. They refused to believe God's word. They worshiped false gods. They rejected God in favor of their own little gods. So God said to those people, you're not going to enter my rest. Meaning, because by your actions you've revealed you don't really believe me, then you don't get to go in. So many of those Jews died in the desert. They wandered around for 40 years and died without ever entering the place of rest. The point wasn't so much the land, but what the land represented. So that's Sabbath rest and land rest. But both of those point forward to the reason we've chosen this passage today. They point forward to what we might call gospel rest. Both Sabbath rest and land rest were ultimately about what this passage is about. That's what we might call gospel rest. This is the rest that you may remember Jesus saying, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This rest is the rest of being eternally at peace with God. It's the rest of your soul. It's the rest knowing your identity as God's adopted son or daughter. It's the rest of knowing that you were once an object of God's wrath, but now you're a person of his favor. It's the rest of being able to to look at people and love them instead of living in fear over what they think about you. It's the rest of knowing because God has first loved you, you can now love others instead of using them, manipulating them for your own good. With this rest, my friends, we don't need the approval of people because you have the approval of God. With this rest, you don't need to attempt to earn God's favor because you already have it in Christ. With this rest, we don't need worth from work or marriage or kids or friends or a particular body shape. We're freed to work hard and enjoy whatever blessings God gives us without looking to those things to provide us with that internal sense of being okay because we have it from God. With this rest, we don't need control. We can trust God who actually has it and promises to exercise it for our good. Doesn't that sound wonderful? With this rest, we're free to think of ourselves less often and devote more prayerful energy towards the needs of other people and how God might use us to bless them without that needing to be the essence of our identity. In other words, we're, we're freed from the demands of others in order that we might meet their true needs. Friends, this is what we might call REM of the soul. It's what we really need when we lay down at night. It's what physical rest is meant to remind us of. This rest is available to you. Normally around here, we don't call it rest. We call it the gospel. But they're one and the same. You see, the gospel is the message that Christ did for you what you could not do for yourself. He lived a perfect life in order that he could die the death that we deserved. 
And by his resurrection, we're then promised a life of rest in him. That's what this passage is inviting us into. And doesn't it sound absolutely wonderful? That's what you may be striving for if your life is constantly overrun. But the tone of this particular text is not so much comfort as it is caution. You see, this passage is intended to give us a warning. It's intended to say, there is rest available to you, but this rest is at risk. You've got to be sure you really have it. Because you may think you have it without having it. You see, gospel rest is rest that's at risk. The risk of the gospel is not that Christianity might end up being a fraud. It's not that after death we'll find out that there really is no God. It's not that some other Savior will trump Jesus. The rest is not that we'll die only to find out that all paths lead to heaven and it didn't really matter what you believed after all. The rest is at risk for something else. The rest is at risk because by our actions and our unbelief, we may reveal over time that we never really trusted the gospel in the first place. We may find out that we've actually never entered God's rest. So if we apply that to this topic of fear of rejection, the risk is that our fear of rejection and our quest to remain in the approval of people might be showing us that we may confess God with our lips, but with our hearts reveal that our functional Savior is not God, but it's other people. And in the end, that's not real belief in God. So in other words, if we crave the approval of people and never know satisfaction in God, it might reveal that I'm not a Christian. Now, how do we see that in the passage? Well, look at verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Jump down to chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear. There's only three things in the entire Bible we are told to fear. One is God. The other is the government, if you do evil. And the third is this, fearing not actually having true belief in the gospel. While the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news, for the gospel came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed... Enter that rest. So what does it take to enter the rest that God invites us into? We just read it. Not a trick question. It takes belief. But part of the problem here is that for many of us, when we hear the word belief, what we think of is mental assent. We think accepting as fact what the scriptures say. And that is belief but it's only part of belief. You see, right now I have a bum leg. And so 
um, I would not do well standing up here for 40 minutes being the flamingo preacher. So I need a chair. And I can look at the chair and believe, have cognitive fact-finding that that chair is going to hold me up. But I don't really believe it unless I what? Sit in it. You see, belief involves placing my trust in. It involves, yes, agreeing it's got four legs and it can probably hold me up. But I'm not really believing unless I sit down on it. You're not really believing in the gospel unless you sit down on Christ. You can believe he came and died and rose again, but you're not really believing unless you stake all of your trust, all of your hope, all of your future, all of your confidence onto Christ. That's belief. And so what the author here is saying, look down at verse 11 now, and this, this image is so odd. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Believing in the gospel is not a blind leap of faith in which you turn off your brain and you just hope it might be true. Belief in the gospel is I'm staking Everything that I am, everything that I have, everything that I hope in, all of my trust and confidence in a crucified Savior. And that in a world that tells us you can only know what you can scientifically prove takes some striving. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Do you hear what he's saying? It's actually quite scary. He says it's possible to read this book every day. It's possible to come into this room every Sunday. It's possible to refrain from the big, scary, hairy, nasty sins. It's possible to be an ethical, kind, moral person and still live all of this life apart from God and all of eternity in hell. That ought to appropriately cause us to ponder the nature of our belief. If we've never really believed and trusted Jesus Christ for salvation, then we're simply spiritual frauds. So to pull all this together... If your life is a life of endless hurry because you long for the approval and the acceptance and you fear rejection from others, then spiritually one of two things is happening, and that's it. Either you're not a Christian, so you're not at peace with God. And on the outside, you might look like it. With your mouth, you might confess it. But if inside you have never known the peace that God provides. And I'm not talking a lack of difficulty or hardship or disease or disappointment. I'm not talking momentary doubt and struggle. But looking back, have, 
Have you been saying with your mouth, I believe God, and yet years and years and years and years have never a single time given you any kind of lasting satisfaction and rest inside? Then you're simply not saved. So, Honestly, if that's where you're at, no wonder you're constantly exhausted. No wonder you fear rejection. Because you're living in a rejection state. So that's one thing that might be going on. Aren't you glad you came today? Or number two, maybe you are genuinely saved, but you're not living out of that sweet gospel reality that's provided by God. You see, it's possible to to have genuine belief and trust in God, but to be struggling to find the way to live in light of it every day. So how do you know which one it is? That seems to be a rather important question, does it not? Do you fear rejection? Do you long so deeply for the approval of people that you seem to never, ever, ever have rest? then I'd just ask you to consider which one of those two places you're in. And ultimately, no one but you, laying your soul bare before God, can find the answer to that. So you can ask God today, God, am I really saved? Have I ever actually trusted you as my Savior and Lord? And whether you're 80 and you've been doing This, sitting here, reading this, singing those songs for decades. Or whether you're in the room for the very first time, your need for God is exactly the same. You see, we never move beyond our need for the gospel, our need to simply trust in Jesus Christ. The gospel is the great news that Jesus lived the perfect life we couldn't live so that he could die the sacrificial death we deserve. Through him today, you can become a person of rest. How? Well, the gospel says that we simply must confess with our mouths Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts, meaning deep inside that God has raised him from the dead. Then you will be saved. In other words... We simply have to admit that we've lived a life apart from God and ask God to save us and invite Him to be the Lord of our lives. Turning from sin and trusting in Him. My dear friend, I was one of those people who for years claimed to have salvation, claimed belief in God had gotten wet in a baptistry, had stood up and gave my testimony, had claimed to be a follower of Christ, only to find out later what I actually did was agree to some facts so that people would think well of me. I wonder, is that you? Is that you? I have absolutely no doubt there is someone and probably multiple someones here today that's in that condition. We live in a culture that teaches us what you do earns you approval. 
And to think that that hasn't saturated and seeped into the way we think about spiritual things is crazy. But you cannot earn the approval of God. You must be given it. And the way you're given it is to recognize your need for Him, to confess Him as Lord, to ask Him to be your Savior. So if you're a person who's never been at rest, if you're a person who's batted around ideas about God, but you never sat down in the gospel, would you do that today? If I could have ordered that sound at this moment, I would have. (laughs) Who knows when your times are coming? But in all seriousness, it's true. What would keep you from Christ if you don't now have him? The only thing standing in the way is you. There's nothing better than knowing the peace that the gospel provides. I'd urge you today, whether you're in a collection of people, a body of believers for the first time, or you've been here as long as this building has been here, if you've not yet known the peace of God, it can be yours today. But if you are saved, what if you made a commitment today to God and to God's people that by God's power and the support of your fellow Christians, that you would move from a life of people-pleasing to a life of living in your identity in Christ? You can be saved for a while and yet be struggling to live in the truth of what the gospel actually gives you. And that may be quite a few of us, actually. You see, you you need the gospel not just to get saved, but you need it for every single day after that. Because the same power that changes you from headed to hell to heaven is the same power that enables you to actually live out the truth of living with Christ. And so maybe you came to Christ by the correct gospel and really are a follower of Jesus, but you've been living by a different gospel, a gospel of works, a gospel of approval of people, a gospel of your own strength. And so maybe today you need to say to God, God, I'm sick and tired of living by my own strength because it doesn't work. So you too can find gospel rest today. Turn to God, turn to Christ and say, I need, I long for, I want to live in your rest that you've given me. And then invite before you leave a brother or sister into that with you because you're going to need help. That's what church is for. Now for all of us, if we respond to the gospel, this passage tells us how to remain in gospel rest. It tells us rest is at risk. And ultimately, how do you know you have it? Well, it's because you continue to live in it. It's because you remain in belief. It's because over time, 
Your actions reveal that God has saved you. You're not saved by what you do, but you are saved for what you do. And so this passage tells us how to remain in gospel rest. Chapter 3, verse 13 says to exhort each other. What does that mean? That's not a word we use. Well, exhorting each other means that we come alongside one another and we aim to encourage and support and bless. It means that we encourage each other where we see our lives reveal that we're not trusting Christ and lovingly urge each other to rest in the gospel. Did you know today, brother or sister, there are areas of your life where you are standing up defiantly resisting sitting in the gospel. There are areas of your life that are probably hidden to you where you're trying to be your own savior. And so God says, come alongside each other and encourage one another. Say to one another, you look like you're striving to be your own savior in that. Are you sure you're sitting down in the gospel there? Or why does that bother you so much? Why is that so important to you? Why does that make you so angry? That's what being a church member is ultimately about. Coming alongside one another, encouraging one another, exhorting one another to trust in Christ. That will never, ever, ever happen unless we spend significant amount of time with each other. It simply cannot happen only sitting in this room facing one direction. This gathering is meant to invigorate us and encourage us and give us shared experiences of worshiping God so that we'll spend the rest of the week inviting people who don't know Christ into relationship with Him and exhorting those who do to follow Him. The second thing it tells us in chapter 4, verse 10, is to remind ourselves that we've rested from our work. This is one of the best pictures, I think, in the whole chapter. Friends, if you're a person who's trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, then God says you have already entered His rest. It says that that same satisfaction that God had on the seventh day, when He sat back and looked at everything He'd made and He said, Wow, that's amazing. And He simply enjoyed it. That that same rest has already been given to you. So your toil to find acceptance and approval from others isn't something you have to live with because you have the rest of God. Can you imagine living like it? Imagine how that would change your motivations. Imagine how that would change the amount of money you spent on clothes. Imagine how that would change the way you think about other people. It would be marked. It would be obvious. You have the rest of God. You don't need validation and commendation from mankind. You have it from God. So you can rest in Christ. You don't have to cover or hide or blame. You can sit down on the inside. That's what the gospel gives you. John Calvin called the reality of this verse the reality of happiness by self-denial. The reality of turning not inward, but outward and upward to the goodness of God and enjoying Him. 
Finally, this passage tells us in verses 11 through 13 of chapter 4 that we're, sh- that we're supposed to treat the heart with the Word of God in community. This passage that the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword is incredibly well-known. One of the most famous passages in the, ver- in the chapter, definitely in the book, maybe in the whole Bible. But do we see it in its context? For what it's actually telling us is as we live as God's people in community, using the Word on each other, then we find that it divides us down to the deepest parts. It reveals where am I sitting in the gospel and where am I not. That's how much God loves us, that we would learn how to enjoy his rest in all things. So friends, there remains for you a rest, a rest that transcends your circumstances, a rest that's not rooted in time or space, a rest that's not about where you work or what your marital status is or whether you have small children running around you or whether or not you have a degree or how much money you have. A rest rooted not in what kind of home you happen to grow up in or what kind of body shape you have. A rest that isn't about whether you have a PhD or you didn't finish high school. A rest that isn't about whether you can afford name brand clothes or you're wearing the same thing you wore yesterday. A rest that isn't about did you grow up in church so you know all the stories or are you a little bit lost when Exodus or Genesis comes up? A rest that isn't about whether you were able to put a nickel or $500 in the offering plate today. You see, this rest is completely and totally not rooted in your circumstances. It's not rooted in what you've done for God or what other people think about you. It's rooted squarely, solely, and only in what Jesus Christ has done for you. And if you do not understand that experientially, then you need the gospel of Christ today. And if at some point you did know that experientially, but you no longer do, you also need the gospel of Jesus Christ today. So let's take a moment in quiet prayer and reflection. I would encourage you to ask God, whether you came here today expecting to do this or not, God, am I trusting solely and only in the finished work of Christ for my approval and my salvation? God, am I saved? And if not, and you believe in Jesus Christ, you want to be rescued from your sin, then you can turn to him now. And if you have that sense on the inside that you already have trusted Christ for salvation, but you've not been sitting in the gospel, then return to him.
Father, there is urgency in Hebrews 3 and 4. There's tremendous promise that there is a rest for the people of God. And if there have ever been people that need gospel rest, it is us. And yet there's caution in Hebrews 3 and 4 that we not arrogantly think we have it if we don't. So, Father, use your word to divide our hearts now, every single one of us. And may we confess you as Lord and Savior and enjoy then the rest we have in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.